Jack Troy built his house and studio and kilns right into the side of a mountain in Pennsylvania, near the college where he taught for many years. Other creatures have also made their homes here. One spring morning, as Jack showed me the kiln shed with the soda kiln, we spied a little bird. That's a Carolina wren over there. See it up on top? Yes. Tiniest little bird. It's the only one that sings in the winter. looking around. Mm-hmm. It has a nest over here it doesn't want us to know about. It's around the corner. I'll show you where it is. Lining the eaves of his screened-in porch, which he also built by hand, are bright red hummingbird feeders. Jack's studio has a high slanted roof and a huge semicircular window to the right of the door, framing a little garden filled this morning with columbine and daffodils in bloom and irises budding. He strategically placed his wheel so he can look out on this lovely scene, and the windowsill is covered with plastic containers full of pottery tools, a ram's skull with curving horns, and a little clay vase with rhododendron blossoms. On the studio walls are tree roots hanging from hooks, seed pods, interesting bits of driftwood, a poster of the vascular system, and above a door, a big octagonal red stop sign with the letters reversed, POTS, P-O-T-S. In fact, almost every surface in the studio is covered with pots in various stages of making and tools and artifacts. Yeah, unlike... Uh, some potters, I don't have a really tidy studio. It's just the way that I work. I think in early on in my life, I traded in all of my organizational cards for inspirational cards. That's how I look at it. Yep, so I know where everything is and I know what to do with it. A long table to the left of the door holds hundreds of pounds of Jack Troy porcelain, made specially for him by standard ceramic. Jack loves this clay because it works beautifully in his wood fire kiln, where the flames and ash leave enigmatic flashes of orange and rivulets of green glaze. Jack teaches wood fire workshops all over the world. He's also an accomplished writer and poet, a passionate student of American literature, and a marvelous storyteller. On this bright spring morning, Jack looked dapper in a striped dark blue collarless shirt, his wispy hair tied back in a tiny ponytail under a tan baseball cap, and his blue eyes sparkling. Jack's denim apron was already covered with white porcelain handprints, and he wedged up some reclaimed clay and sat down at his wheel, bathed in light from the huge window. So I'm just gonna make some small bottles today. This is a, 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 a kick wheel that has a motor. It's called a Randall wheel. It was invented by Ted Randall, who uh, taught many years at Alfred University. And it has a motor, and I can use that for centering the clay or making the wheel go fast, and then you'll hear a little click. So the motor's off now, and it's just running on a momentum. It has a 
115 pound flywheel and that keeps the wheel moving. And I think what I just saw was in one fluid movement you opened up the ball of clay mm -hmm. and then you opened it all the way up and, and pulled up the walls. Yes. Yes, I learned that from Louis Mendez. Did you ever know Louis? No. Louis taught at what was then the University of the Art, no, uh, the Philadelphia College of... Philadelphia College of Art. Art, mm -hmm. yeah. That was in 1963, I think, or four. I took a class with Louis. And um, he asked me the central question of my early career. He said, Jack, do you want to keep making what you're making, or do you want to learn to make really good pots? <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, I want to make really good pots, Louie. I could tell his pots were, were really good. They were light. They had an appropriate eye-hand relationship, and mine were, were very heavy. Mine had really good shape. I had a good sense of form but I hadn't handled enough pots to know that, that when you looked at a piece, you should be able to imagine how much energy it would take to lift it. And so mine were kind of like beautiful doorstops, and Louis were nice, like maybe kind of like fruit. Now they have that, you know how much an apple weighs when you see it or a banana or an orange. You go to pick it up, you're never discouraged that it weighs twice as much as it looks like. And to try to you know, get that same uh, sense in the pot, a, a kind of economy of form and um, movement. So you're, you're not using any more materials than you have to and the materials that you are using, you're using them economically. You're getting a, a nice stretched wall. So even making a simple little bottle like this. And because I'm gonna fire these in the wood kill, I know that that they are going to be impinged upon by the flame and the heat and the clay is going to respond to all of that and it's going to document what happened to it. That's what's especially intriguing to me because where the pot is in the kill and what it's made of will all determine how it comes out and what we see. And because those things are unpredictable to me, I never imagine exactly how something is going to look. Then there are always surprises. I used to do a lot of salt glazing and I was really passionate enough about that to write a book about it. But 
when I wrote the book, when, it, when the book came out, I read it, and I knew it was the best book that I could write. But I also realized that I had lost all my passion for doing salt glazing because I had run out of questions to ask myself. And uh, so that's when I discovered a single pot in a flea market over by Pottstown. And my questions about that pot have led me to right where I am here today. Um, because you can never run out of questions to ask yourself about wood firing. It just seemed fraught with so many unknowns. And of course, that's what you have to be grateful for as uh, incentive. It, it incentivizes your curiosity. Well, it's interesting because fraught is one of those words that most of us try to avoid. Yeah. And it sounds like for you in this creative discovery, fraught with questions is actually a really good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, if it weren't for what I don't know, I don't think I would work. I know how to make two things that if I were in this for money, I would do nothing but make those two things. And my friend who's uh, uh, is in international relations, he said, you know, why would you make anything else? And I said, what, what would it turn me into? You know, I'm interested in turning clay into things, but I also know that what I make is turning me into something. And I think it was a little too abstract for him, but M.C. Richards was the first person I knew that, that said we are really making ourselves when we're making our pots. And without that, that sense of continually searching, then we're just making products. And I'm not particularly interested in making products. I want it to always be an adventure. I also support myself with it. When I taught at the college, I taught part-time by choice so I could write and um, teach workshops and make my work. So I really don't have any retirement from the college. I have my uh, Social Security, which is about within around $23 of what I was getting when I was teaching at the college. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it was just, you know, it was a, a thin cushion, a survival cushion that I uh, worked with. And that was happy. It was, uh, it was good. And I still enjoy teaching. I really like teaching workshops. I was gone almost all of March. I taught in Tennessee and Oregon and Washington. And um, I like sharing information because basically you're getting paid to learn. Wherever you teach, you're functioning as a learner because 
other people are sharing their knowledge too. They're giving you uh, their questions and then you're thinking on your feet about how you might solve problems that other people have because they're always parallels to your own problems in uh, working with various materials. So it's still exciting. This is the 53rd year of making things. Although I have a feeling, were you making things even as a little boy? Even if it wasn't clay, were you? Well, yeah, my dad, my dad um, and brother and I had a workshop in the house we grew up in. And my father was a very inventive guy. He worked for the uh, electric company. He was an electrical engineer. And he never said anything like, use your imagination. He just, he just did stuff using his imagination. One time, it snowed right before Christmas. We lived in this huge house in northern Pennsylvania. And I must have been at a skeptical age where I was wondering about Santa Claus. And so my dad, who didn't hunt, uh, got a deer leg from a hunter and tied it on a stick. And when my brother and I were asleep, he opened one of the upstairs windows and he tracked this deer foot in the snow out there on the roof. So we had empirical evidence that the reindeer had landed out there while we were asleep. Oh my gosh. So, you know, he... Uh, we always had projects. My father had, in fact, we lived in a project. This house, this house was astonishing. And they bought it for $5,000 in 1944. And it was at one time a magnificent home. <clears throat> and the, it had just gone downhill and downhill. And then we got it. And... <clears throat> My parents were just determined to make this house into something that was you know, restored to some kind of semblance of its previous life. And um, one of the first things we wanted to do was to make a shop where we could work and make things. And um, <clears throat> the room that we chose was upstairs in the back. And do you know the people who had lived there before we bought it, had raised chickens in the same house they were living in. Oh my gosh. Upstairs. And so we were clearing this room out to, to make our shop. And my mother discovered a little mummified chick and she ran screaming out of the, she abandoned that part of the project. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have been with her. Yeah. Interviewing you here, I love Hearing the sound of the wheel. I love hearing the birds outside. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really wonderful. I transplanted a rose out here that was here when I bought this property in 1972 from an 85-year-old lady. She said that those roses were her grandmother's. So how old would that make them? And they're still hanging on, and I put them in a place where there's more sun. 
and I think they're going to prosper. I love that you've planted daffodils and columbine, and it looks like some mm-hmm. sort of ornamental garlic right out your window of your studio. Yeah. Yeah, I built a whole studio around this window. I found it in a, a recycling place, and I thought, oh, I know what to do with that. So it faces south, mm. and um, they get nice light in here. And you situated your wheel so that you get yeah. to look up the hill. And the light comes from the right, where, where I'm doing my work. Yeah, so these are little simple forms that will go all around in the kiln. Although I know because of the clay I'm using, I know right where they'll go. Because you know your kiln so well, you know where the Mm -hmm. best place is. The kiln has different zones, and there are appropriate and inappropriate clays for every zone. So I use about six kinds of clay every time I fire. This is the large wood kiln. That's the one that gets fired once a year. Mm. I'm looking now down into your pot, and I saw you with your finger just touch that rim. Is there something about making, softening that piece of the rim that... um, yeah, I, I like that to be a smooth transition. If it's a sharp angle, then it's, act, it's apt to chip. And also the ash doesn't like to accommodate to an edge. It's much more comfortable with a soft edge, kind of like a lip. Well, it's interesting, and it's right where the inside meets the outside. And yes. so it's as if you are, you are softening that transition from inside yeah. to outside so we don't know what's what. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you don't mind cats. Her name is Kabuki. She looks like a Japanese actress. She has eyeshadow. She looks a little like she might have had a raccoon as a uh, as an ancestor. Yes, it does. <laughs> She's so well disciplined. We never have to say no to her. She doesn't jump up on things. She doesn't break stuff. She doesn't get in trouble. She's just an ideal cat. So you talked about these little jars as things you'll put all around, but in a particular part of the kiln. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where will they go and why? These will go within um, three feet of the firebox um, because they need a lot of heat over a period of time to respond to the, uh, to the heat and to the ash that lands on the pots. And if they go four feet back, they will be under-fired. The ash that lands on them will not melt, will not uh, fuse to the clay, and uh, they will just look as though they need to be fired again. 
and so I try to avoid that. Although, it used to be that when I made things and they didn't come out right, I would throw them away. But over time, I've gotten more used to looking at things and seeing uh, whether they have possibility for um, being refired. Mm. Uh, that's one thing I've definitely learned that I didn't. It took me a while to learn. That just because the first time it didn't work didn't mean you couldn't try again. Exactly. But that was not my intuitive response. Intuitive response was to say, that didn't work, throw it away, make something else. But now I can see that, that um, some pieces have a good start, but they need more heat. They need to go back in again. One of the very best pieces I ever made was um, a refired piece, and it was just startlingly good. You know, it's interesting you say it's your intuition, but it also feels cultural in a way. This idea that it has to be right the first time, and if it's not, throw it away and do something else. Mm-hmm. And that it's almost going against what we're told <laughs> to... Oh, yes. That's always a good plan, I think. Um. It's to listen to that voice and then say no. <laughs> Yeah, just to think, what what if? Yeah, I like say I like the development of color in this piece. I certainly like the form. The form is not going to change, and um, so maybe I'll put it in a different part of the kill. Maybe I'll um, put it higher or down more by the floor, and. All of those things determine the outcome. They have so much to do with the way a piece is going to appear. So we're really conferring identity on the work. And I know you've written about this, and I found it too, that there's something about pots that require a kind of tactile response, <laughs> rather that the visual is an important piece, but it's almost as if the people who pick it up and then spend time holding it, that's when they know this is the one for them. Yeah, I agree. Pottery is one of the few art forms that's accessible to blind people. And it's really in the touch. Did you ever hear of the folk musician Doc Watson. Yes. Yeah, Doc Watson came to our college to play a concert one time, and it was before uh, cell phones, and he wanted to call his wife, and I said, oh, you could come over to my studio and use the telephone. So we went over, and and he uh, he talked with Rosalie, and then he said, what do you do in here? And I said, oh, I make pottery. And I had just unloaded a kill of uh, small porcelain bowls. And there were about 20 of them on my table. And I said, over here, you just, uh, 
here, you can pick these up. And he, he picked them all up and he got to this one and he said, now this one's really beautiful. And that's the one I would have chosen. I'm not kidding. It, it was the, the real winner of the litter as far as I would concern. And I thought it was so appropriate that, that something about it came across to a man who couldn't see it. It was all in the touch. And of course, I wrapped it up for him. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a marvelous moment. Jack, may I ask you about the tools that you're using for these? Yeah, um, they're just a couple of basic tools. This is a piece of bamboo that's been cut and sharpened. This is a flexible metal rib shaped like a kidney. And this is a, a straight edge tool with a curve on the other side. And the, this is just about the one I use the most. And this is just a, a wooden rib that I use to compress the base. And um, those are the basic tools that I use. And of course a needle tool and but then you have a couple in your bucket. You have a, a really interesting wooden uh, piece oh. of wood with a knob at the end. Yeah, yeah. I designed these tools, and uh, a friend of mine, an Amishman, and his family make them for me. They're called, uh, the Japanese word is igote. Igote is a, a stick that goes inside where your fingers can't reach, and it helps to enlarge the uh, capacity of the piece and it shapes the shoulder and belly uh, because you can no longer get your hand down in there. So yeah, they're really helpful. <clears throat> yes, I noticed as you were, because you collar in the top of your jar yep. and then you shape it after you've made the collar which allows yes. you then to get a beautiful profile. Yeah, yep. And then you don't use a chamois, but you use what looks like a piece of plastic? This is a sponge. Oh, yeah, a piece of plastic for the rim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was always losing the chamois. So, uh, <laughs> and when they get in the clay, they're a mess. Yeah, for sure. So the, yeah, the edge of a plastic clay bag works pretty well. So uh, growing up, you and your brother and your dad would have these adventures and make things. When did you start making things on your own? That was uh, when I was teaching high school. I majored in English and um, I, I really enjoyed teaching English. But until I started to work in clay, I didn't realize how important it was to have some some tangible evidence of what I was doing. Mm. I was teaching English. There's no product involved. You have to imagine that there's a product. You have to imagine that your students go away with some information or some questions or something, but you don't see it. But when you go in the studio and you make things, boy, you go in the next day and you think, wow, this one's really good. 
This one's not very good. And you begin looking at your work, making judgments. Not everybody needs that kind of tangible reinforcement or substantiation for effort put out. And I didn't know I did until I saw the work. Come in the next day and there's your work. There's, there's what you did the day before. And it's just really uh, encouraging. Was there something too about, you know, you were spending your days engaged with young people in, with your mind, mm -hmm. and that here you got to work with, get your hands messy and be immersed in a material too. Yeah, definitely. Yep, touch-based learning is not, doesn't have a high priority in our uh, educational system. We've gotten farther and farther away from that. Very few schools have shop classes anymore. Uh, they've sold all the tools and bought computers, which is okay, but using a computer is such a limited way to use our hands. And we're, we're just programmed into using them in a certain way to type. And it's not to say that you can't be creative that way. Uh, but there are some people who want to be able to shape things and to... Literally shape things. Yeah, literally shape things and be shaped by what they're shaping. And so I think there will always be people who like to, to touch material. See, when you work on a computer, you're, you're touching something that touches something else. When you make a painting, you're touching a brush, and the brush touches the canvas, unless you're doing some kind of finger painting. And with this material, you are touching the actual material. And that that is an intimacy that's important. Everybody compares clay to flesh. It has a flesh-like sense of uh, response. And, uh, it's truly miraculous material. After spending a spring morning throwing porcelain bottles in his studio, Jack Troy and I walked the short gravel path to his back door. Would you like a cup of tea? I'd love a cup of tea. That would be lovely. We sat at his wooden dining table and waited for the water to boil. Jack brought over a large brown jug this is the pot that sparked his passion for wood firing, a passion that's lasted for more than four decades. Well, I found this in a flea market in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. 
and it was about two months after my salt glaze book came out and I knew that I was pretty much over it making salt glaze for a while I didn't know what to do with my throwing skills. <laughs> what did that so, feel like at that moment? Was that hard? Yeah, it was, it was very peculiar. I had kind of postpartum depression about it because, you know, when you're working on a book and you have a deadline, you really work to, to meet the deadline and to do the best job you can. And uh, so that was over with. And I happened to see this pot, and it had uh, $15 written on it in chalk. And I... I asked the uh, proprietor if he knew anything about it, and he said, Mister, that's been here for two years, and you're the first guy to pick it up. How about eight bucks? I said, yeah, okay. I'd like to know more about it. He didn't know squat about it. It's a French jug. I took it down to the Smithsonian and had them look at it, and they didn't know about it. But somebody came here one time, and he had been to Le Bourne in France, and that's where it was made. And I was intrigued by how it had fallen over in the firing. See, it, it landed like this, and then the fire is coming from you, and the ash landed here. And it got so hot that it melted and ran in these little rivulets. And... I just like the story that it told about its experience in the kill. And, and the form itself, I had never seen a two-handled jug with the handles on the shoulders. And then I learned that they would braid a rope handle to go from uh, across these two clay handles and that they were used mostly for vinegar and wine. And um, so they're still making these kinds of pots. And, of course, I, um, I, I had to go to Le Bourne, uh to see where these pieces were made. Um, hitchhiked into there from the nearest train station. It's a tiny town, but it's loaded with potters. So many people go there because the clay is so good. And they've been wood firing forever. So it was really terrific to have a, a, a really important single pot change the course of your professional career. And I think that there's, there's a fair amount of mysticism <laughs> connected with that. You know, if it had happened the day before or the day after, I might not have given the thing a look. But it just seems like there are so many forces that have to be focused on a particular day. And reading a certain book, meeting a certain person, hearing a certain piece of music... All those things just have to be in focus. And, and it's about readiness, isn't it? Um, so I was ready to see this pot. Might have been ready to see another pot, you know. But uh, 
I, I have so much respect for things I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining you. You just published this book. You are seen as an expert on, on uh, a particular kind of glazing. And suddenly you chose to be a novice again, in a way, to explore something you hadn't ever seen before. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I feel irresponsible about my curiosity. I don't know where it comes from. I have a huge amount of respect for it. And I, I try to follow it where it's socially acceptable. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, here's something that I can do for its own sake. I might have known nobody cared about it. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> Everybody had the same response to my wood-fired work. They'd say, oh, it's so interesting. And they'd say, and... And it's so nice that you have something that, that's so important to you. And, and uh, now do you have any, any pots that I might like? Anything that's blue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I make uh, glazed work for my sale because uh, glazed work mostly reinforces what people already know about pottery. And I still have a uh, productive curiosity about glazed work. I don't feel as though it's prostituting myself to do to make things that people like. I like them too. I like I like mutually incompatible kinds of music that many people would consider mutually incompatible. But I just like them for what they are. I like um, I like bluegrass music, I like folk music of almost all kinds, especially Appalachian banjo music. I also like uh, Dvorak string quartets. I really like Dvorak string quartets. And you don't listen to them at the same time or one right after the other, but it's, it's expression, you know? That's, that's what you want. So the curiosity a lot of us are curious, um, but what I see in you, Jack, is that you take it to that next step, which is, oh, how is this made and how might I play with it? And mm -hmm. where do you think that came from? Because I think a lot of people don't give themselves that permission. Uh, I feel sorry for them, but mm -hmm. uh, maybe they'll they'll follow up on something. Maybe, maybe they like to cook in a certain way, or maybe they, they want to combine certain kinds of sauces or spices or foods of some kind, and maybe they come up with something that they can take credit for, so they're not just blindly following somebody else's um, recipe. So... I don't know what what motivates people to to have the um, the confidence to take risks and be curious about things. I mean, 
these are not earth-shattering consequences to putting two different kinds of clays together. They're really very modest, inconspicuous things that you do in your little shop, you know. <laughs> but, but they're important. And I have no way to know where meaning comes from. I'm intrigued by the issue, but why, why are some things meaningful to us? Things that we never learned had that, that, that might have meaning like the forms of things we make and what to do with them, where they might find a place in the world. Are we just making stuff? There's plenty of stuff already, um, but the, the continuum that we're on is unless we're just making a product year after year after year, and I know potters who are doing that, and that provides for them, it's a good uh, source of income uh, for them. I've had really lean years and some years that were better, but I've never tried using the work to draw attention to myself. And that brings me to the issue of being honored, which really confuses me. <laughs> I, I don't know how I should respond to it. Um, I'm naturally, I'm curious about it, but I, I don't, I've never really gotten an honor for anything. My pots have won prizes in shows, but I never felt that I won the prize. I always thought the pot got the prize, and I felt good for the pot. Um, I, I think they just, when they leave our hands, they have a life of their own, and I wish them well, but I have never felt personally attracted, I mean, in a deep attachment kind of way, to what I make. I think of what I make as being a lot like uh, hair that I grow or fingernails that I grow. It is of me, but it's not me. It's not my flesh. It does not have my circulatory system or my endocrine system. It's a thing. It's an object. It's out there. I have a certain kind of identity with it, but not a deep, meaningful identity. I'm, I'm really glad when they work out, but I can only take partial responsibility for them. I wanted to ask you about um, the collaboration with the clay and with the fire, because I think about the work that you've chosen to do, and so much of it is like a dance that you do with something that you can't entirely control. Yeah, I think that's the saving grace, is not being able to control it. Because as soon as I made things that I could control, I lost interest in it. My mind wandered. It reminded me too much of school, I guess. 
Yeah, I'm, I feel very lucky to have found something that has a, a, a marvelous proportion of challenge and fulfillment of uh, intention and happenstance. What's your relationship with fire? What is it that draws you to fire? It is a, um, it, it's a helpful adversary on, on the, the good days. I, it's something you have a great deal of respect for. You, you can't make it do the things you might like it to do. You know, sometimes you're at its mercy. And it's, it's quite different from heat because an electric kill has heat in it, but it doesn't have fire. And fire is this perfidious delivery mechanism that it brings the heat, but it's more than heat. So being uh, subjecting the pots to the flame itself and the heat delivered by the flame, it just has enormous aesthetic potential for some of us. And there is not any longer any such thing as a typical wood-fired pot because there are so many of us working with uh, so many different kinds of clays and wood and firing cycles and kill designs. It's, it's really happily bewildering. Um, that's how I feel about it. I'm going to give a little talk down in North Carolina at a wood-firing conference in um, early June. And, um, yeah, I, I want to commend everybody who's involved in it because... Nobody got involved in it because it was a movement. The movement just grew up around us. Other people told us that we were part of a movement, <laughs> to our great surprise. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, I sit here in your beautiful room, surrounded by pots made, some it looks like by people you were very close to, and some, like this one, by someone you never met. Yeah. And I think about what it would be like to have one of your tea bowls at home to have my tea meditation in the morning. And it's true, it is something that you've put out into the world, but this is a long way to get to something that I think about a lot, which is I, I did a lot of work for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and so I would spend a lot of time between meetings just wandering the halls. And mm -hmm. my favorite things were when I would look at a pot and see a fingerprint. Yeah. and realized that a life had gone into that work. I mean, it's true of all the paintings, too, yeah. but there's something so intimate, as you said before, mm -hmm. of I see the worlds in somebody's thumbprint yeah. there. And I, I look at the pots here, and I think about the pots that you have that are in the world, and there's a part of you that's in them. Yes, yes, there is. And... It's, it's really uh, joyful to know, and I can say this, I think, honestly, at any given mealtime, something I've made is being used. And that is a kind of salary that you can't take to the bank, 
Um, it's just uh, very fulfilling to know uh, that that other people are enjoying the work, and and that's that's basically why it, it's a big motivational force to keep doing this work. It's also a sense of destiny in it. I don't know why this is the work that chose me, but I think I didn't really choose it. Leonard Cohen has a line, I am not the one who loves, it's love that chooses me. And Stanley Kunitz said that the, the poem chooses the poet. It's as if the subject of the poem wants to have an existence and it keeps bogging you until you give it an existence and not just any existence but the best existence that you can give it working on it until it looks as though you didn't work on it. And then that is, it doesn't bother you anymore. It's kind of out of your system. So, yeah, there's, there's a, a, a mystical aspect to it that um, I think is worth thinking about, looking at. M.C. Richards was a person who felt deeply that we were making not just objects, but we were making um, a self. And, yeah, that's something that... When I started to do this, uh, it was for no kind of uh, intangible reason at all. It was just to get some kind of color on <laughs> that clay, you know, and do the technical things. And the technical things are always fascinating, but they're integrated with a deeper um, sensitivity to meaning. And that will always be there, and I'll never solve it. Sometimes I wonder if there is a certain pot that I'll take from the kill, and and it will be so good that I'll say, that's why I made all of the rest of them, and and now it's over. Do you think that that is a possibility? Do you think that 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 there might be one object that you feel, ah. If there is, I know I will recognize it. Yeah. After finishing our tea, we brought the teapot and teacups back into Jack's kitchen, and we looked out his kitchen window at the bird feeder he had made. It's wood-fired and filled with activity. Past it was hanging a suet cage from one of the tall trees that cover the steep slope of the mountain into which his wooden house is set. We admired the goldfinches and nuthatches and titmice. Yeah, and then these are, of course, the uh, uh, downy woodpeckers and the hairy woodpeckers. And there also uh, is a red-bellied woodpecker that comes here, which has a really resplendent red head and as you can see 
from the tree, the bears smell the suet, and they climb up there, and they can't get at it. Are those so, bear claw? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, my they've, gosh! They've scraped the bark off that tree. It's discouraging. Do you have to think about that as you walk back and forth and you fire your kiln for four days? No, they only they only come out at night, and usually when we fire, they're hibernating. And so, I'm of two minds about that suet. It's marvelous to see the birds, and they're feeding young now, so they're constantly pigging out and then going back and mm -hmm. regurgitating it for their young. And um, I've been thinking about moving that cable so it maybe goes from that tree over to this part of the house. I'd like to get it away from that tree. So the bears are, it, yeah. it's too far away for them. Mm -hmm. And Jeez. I would love if you would read a couple of your poems because yeah. I think that that's, that's a, such a, an important piece of who you are. Yeah, um, I can say uh, one poem because we're, we're looking at the birds yes. eating the suet. This poem is called Conversions. This winter the birds ate nearly 40 pounds of suet. Most days I watched them peck and then convert a phantom steer's insides to flight, to feathered warmth a winter's night could not snuff out. Then I drove to class and showed you how to give shape to energy with a potter's wheel. Torquing our planet's flesh lump after lump into cups and bowls by the dozens, we gave them form, color, fire, memory. Can you feel in a teacup's heat that friction of change, the combustion of one thing becoming another? Oh, there's Miss Kitty. Perfect, perfect timing there, Hi, sweetie. Kitty. <laughs> Kabuki. Yes. That's Jack Troy. For his contribution to the field of ceramics, Jack Troy was honored as a watershed legend in 2017. He continues to write and teach and make pots, and you can find out more about him and his work at jacktroy.net. Conversations with Legends are a production of the Watershed Center for the Ceramic Arts. You can learn more about Watershed at watershedceramics.org. This conversation is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. I'm Julie Burstein. Thank you so much for listening.